Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight here on May the 4th of 2017 here on the Golf Talk Live uh, program. And, of course, we are on the blogtalkradio.com network. I'm glad you could join us here during the live broadcast. And just to let everybody know, um, I'll give you the details here in just a second, how you can tune in each and every week and how you can share the information. But we've uh, got a great show for you tonight. We're going to start out, of course, Uh, with a couple of great professionals here on Coach's Corner, Pete Buchanan and uh, John Weir will be joining me here in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, my special guest this evening is somebody who's never been on the show but um, have watched and and followed his career over the years, Uh, a fellow Canadian, Mark Evershed. He's going to be joining me here, a fellow golf professional and was also the Canadian PGA Teacher of the Year uh, as well and uh, knew, of course, and followed uh, Mo Norman and uh, uh, George Knudsen, who were two great Canadian golfers. And I'll He'll, I'm sure, tell you a little bit about them when he comes on the show as well a little bit later. But uh, anyway, we've got a great show tonight. And uh, just to remind everybody, of course, we are live from uh, 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern for those of you on the East Coast. And best way to find us, of course, is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or just type golf talk live up in the search key and that will take you to uh, the homepage there. And of course, uh, the show is front and center. But if you can't listen uh, during the live broadcast on Thursday nights, uh, you can just go to that link, blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live, and just scroll down to the on demand section. And that's where all of the previously aired shows are auto recorded and saved in that uh, area there on the page. So you can just scroll down and listen to them uh, when it's convenient for you. Uh, or you can email any questions or comments to me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Always love to hear from you. And especially those of you in the golf uh, business, that if you're interested in being a guest on the show, uh, or maybe you know somebody that uh, is in the golf profession, maybe you'd like to hear on the program, uh, you can certainly reach out to me and, and uh, make me aware of that. And again, the email is ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And uh, of course, uh, update everything on social media. If you go to facebook.com and type in Golf Talk Live blog, uh, you'll get the uh, Golf Talk Live homepage there and uh, update each and every week all of my guests and, and the panelists uh, on the Coach's Corner. And you can also uh, like the page while you're there. Appreciate if you do that. And you can also follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Ted and Buck CEO, and that's CEO in capital letters. Um, thanks for all of the recent followers there on Twitter as well. And uh, as I said, we're going to start off with a, with a great show, uh, Coach's Corner, uh, each and every week, and, unless otherwise stated. And, and tonight I've got two great guys on the panel. Uh, Pete Buchanan, of course, has been with me many, many times on the show over the last several years. He's the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf. Uh, which, of course, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and Plain Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, He's taught uh, for 30 years plus in the business, so he's a very well-rounded and very experienced uh, gentleman, and he has uh, spent much of his career simplifying his golf swing philosophy in order 
and an effort rather to make it simple for players to play this game like you. Uh, John Weir, of course, uh, has been on the show for a little while, but he's joining me back here on the panel as well. And he's the uh, director of Mental uh, Golf Academy and Mental Performance Coach. Uh, he is also uh, a mental performance coach to elite junior, collegiate, and professional golfers from around the world and is the developer and head researcher of the Mental Golf Type System and also authored two great books, uh, Golfer's Guide to Mental Fitness and the creator of the Mental Caddy uh, Subconscious uh, conditioning program, so uh, lots of accolades there. Um, guys, welcome to uh, Coach's Corner. Thanks for having me, Ted. Great to be here. All right, not a problem. Uh, anyways, guys, as I mentioned to you off air, what I wanted to do here, since there was just the two of you tonight, is I, I did a little research and, and pulled a few things. And Pete, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. Uh, a few things just from your own websites I thought uh, would be kind of interesting to talk about uh, since you guys have, have gone to great lengths of making it available to your, your followers and, and uh, students and so forth. So, Pete, I'm going to uh, start with you here, as I said. And, and the first thing that I want to talk about is, um, is creating a simple, and this is an article that you wrote actually April 16th of this year, uh, simple repeatable ball control with distance. Explain first off what you mean by that and how you help your students uh, and the listeners in, in the show tonight um, accomplish just that. Well, over the years of looking at the golf swing, you know, it, it was a great um, run for me with the John Jacobs schools because we got to see so many to thousands and thousands of golf swings. And so I began to look at it to try to take it to its simplest form to get the, the most out of the control without having to sacrifice any distance with it. And what I found was the more we kept the club swinging uh, parallel to the original shaft angle uh, from the address through the swing, the more control we had. And it did not uh, do anything to the distance. As, as a matter of fact, for the most part, we got more. Um, it changed the, the way the club was approaching the ball from a more shallow attack, which allowed the shaft to work a lot easier. But by keeping that there and also by um, – you know, really calming the hands down and keeping the, the angle form between the shaft and the lead arm the same. It just, um, you know, I, I started experimenting with it and with my own game and, and um, you know, just kept the, the control was just unbelievable. So, um, you know, I began to, to bring it into my students and, and that's basically where the whole thing evolved from. And that's how my, my training aid got involved with it too. I developed that because it was a, a catalyst piece to help keep uh, that lead angle between the, the arm and the shaft, uh, the same. And, um, that's really how it all evolved. So by, by doing that, um, I was able to get not only great ball control and contact, but, uh, keep, keep distance in the, in the swing as well. Well, well said. Um, John, I, I also equally uh, visited your site as well and, and, uh, looked at a, a couple of uh, great articles. One particular caught my eye, um, and you started off by saying every golfer needs uh, goals, and then you, you break down really five types um, to set for your game. And I want to go through uh, – we'll go through a couple here, and then we'll go back to Pete and then come back here just because uh, I know it'll be, take a few moments to go through each one of them and that. But let's do the, the first uh, two here. First off, explain why it's important, uh, in, in your opinion, to, um, to really set goals and give a breakdown of the five goals. Maybe you can just sort of head them out, and then we'll, we'll talk about a couple of them uh, in this round. How, how's that? Sounds good. Um, well, first off, having goals, obviously, is very important, not only in practice, but also going out to play. 
And uh, we like to break down, at least for the players going out onto the courses, they're divided up between kind of having outcome goals and process goals. And our outcome goals is obviously going to be, you know, where do we want to finish in the event or, you know, what's our main goal for, for entering the event. And our process goals is basically going to indicate where our on-course focus is going to be. And these are going to be our goals on the course, such as, let's say, staying in a positive frame of mind, committing to making smart decisions, and sticking to your shot process. So once we break down the outcome goal, we try to break it down into those three process goals, and that's our on-course focus. The goal for the outcome would be used off the course. So a great mental exercise people do is they visualize one, the end happening. So maybe that's them signing in a card and getting their first win or uh, going off the course and setting a new low or a birdie, a birdie number that they were shooting for. And then they can mentally go through that image and see themselves working those process goals or getting down to the business of getting it done on the course. So uh, those are our two real primary goals, and I think that if we go out there and don't have a direction, um, we really put ourselves behind the eight ball. So setting a good goal, giving your brain a direction on what you're playing for can increase your commitment and, and confidence out there. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and that's obviously something we'll, we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit more in here in just a second, about you know, one of the reasons that I think a lot of people – um, and I hate to use the, the term fail, but, uh, you know, out on the golf course, cause they, they, they don't set any goals when they get out there. They, um, just sort of haphazardly navigate their way around the golf course without any sort of real intent or, or a short term goal, or even a long term goal for the season. And, uh, ultimately mm -hmm. just end up, uh, you know, floundering for, for most of it. Um, Pete, I want to go back to you here, um, to talk about, um, the, sort of the simplicity versus uh, mechanical um, as an example. Um, you know, we hear a lot of swing theories out there with a lot of the players and uh, a lot of the coaches out there as well uh, can get very mechanical in their instruction. Why do you feel it's important to keep it a little bit more simple as opposed to, um, you know, a lot of the mechanical techniques that we see out, out in some of the, the teaching? Well, for the most part, when people play in golf, I mean, there's not much you can – you can think about why you're playing in the first place. So we need to keep it down to as simple as possible. Um, you know, you could detail out every inch of the swing, but there are certain things that are going to happen on their own anyway. And so I've never felt mm -hmm. it was necessary to think about those things. Um, I want to get the big things done. So the little things take care of themselves. So I stick to the sim simple idea of the balls to the side and on the ground. We have to set up in a fashion that's going to allow us to move and balance. And the club has to swing side to side and up and down. Now, I mean, the ball's been to the side and on the ground since the game began, and that's never changed. So we always have to look at, you know, the simplest way to move the golf club so we can achieve the proper impact. So my first question to the players always is, you know, what do you want the ball to do? And so, so I know what we're trying to achieve. And then I ask them, do you know how to achieve that? And if they don't, um, you know, we'll explain, you know, what's necessary, what impact is necessary to get the ball flight they want. And then let's take the simplest, most direct route to making that happen on a repeated basis. And so, um, you know, I always like to, to, to listen when I was with the school. I, I love to listen to John because, you know, he, he really taught me how to make one change that affected eight other things. And so you can really just get right down to the root causes and really – Keep it very simple in the focus of what the golf swing is all about. 
And I just found that that uh, got players, you know, along a lot further um, in, a, in a faster time than worrying about all the details. Now, it's not to say that I haven't used the details because I have some of my players that are extremely mechanical. They want to know every move. And I said, well, I'll tell it to you. But when we practice, we're not going to dwell on those. We're going to look at the, the few simple things that are going to allow you to get done what needs to be done. And, and so that when you get to the golf course, you're on autopilot. So you don't have to worry about those things. And so that's why I've always kept it to a very simple basis. Yeah. And, and I, I, I uh, agree with that as well. And, and I, you know, just a further point, John, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, you know, I think one of the, the important things, I think people do need to understand the various positions through the golf swing, but really impact is the most important position because how you get the club to impact is really up to you. And the reason why I say that is if you look at players like, and I've used this example many times, Lee Trevino and many others um, that had very unorthodox swings compared to many others in the tour, but their impact position was always the same essentially as everybody else's. Um, And I think, John, you would probably agree that, you know, whether you're, you're uh, Freddie Couples that maybe takes it a little bit more on the outside and then loops it around, or somebody like a Lee Trevino uh, that, that has, again, a unique swing, as long as they're bringing it into the proper position at impact, it really doesn't matter so much the backswing um, as it does impact and then obviously follow through. Um, do you agree with that, uh, John? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the same with the mental approach. I don't think uh, taking away sometimes the player's individual nuances is, is a good thing. Um, and, you know, in our programs, we, we base it around people's individual personality types and, and we coach every player different. So I would agree. I think the moment of truth impact and, and the results, if we're predictable with it, and I think having a little personal nuance in there or your natural move isn't a bad thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that one of the, the issues that I see in today's, and this is going to be open to really both of you, um, is again, I don't have an, an issue with somebody being taught the, the basic mechanics of the golf swing, but I think that when a player is being forced to, to get into certain positions throughout the golf swing, and it may not be a natural flow for that particular individual, I think can actually be detrimental to their to their game. I mean, everybody has a unique flow or ebb and flow of their of their own golf swing, and there are certain constants within the swing, but again how somebody does this, the, the golf swing, whether they, again, take it more on the outside or more on the inside um, is really indicative to each individual style. But as long as those other key positions, like particularly impact uh, are, are uniquely the same, then I think, you know, you, you could throw away the argument that everybody has to be, um, you know, an iron Byron as an example. Uh, and I think unfortunately golf instruction for a long, long time started to become very regimented in its teaching. And I think that a lot of people got frustrated because they just couldn't get into those perfect uh, positions every time. Um, Pete, what are your thoughts there? Well, you know, the, there was, there was a great post I saw the other day and looking at one of the, one of the Facebook groups and they, they were talking about if Dustin Johnson showed up on your tee, what would you change? And I said, well, I'd watch him hit first. And after watching that, I wouldn't change anything. After watching that ball flight, you'd just say, Hey, let's go to the golf course. This is phenomenal. So you really have to look at, you know, what are they, what are their abilities to hit it first? You know, what can they do? And then take it from there. So that way you're always letting, you know, what they're able to do uh, uh, come out. Now, if they're not getting the ball flight that's necessary, then you can go through, 
you know, the steps to, to create that. Um, there are sometimes when you have to talk about, you know, where a golf club goes, a, a certain quote unquote position of where it is, because that particular position could be, you know, from, from a, a better part of, of what's happening, uh, you know, the cause of why their shots are doing what they're doing. So you have to make a change there. Um, you know, a great example of that is I had a gentleman that I was working with a couple of weekends ago. He needs two knee replacement surgeries. He needs a new hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't move around very much. Um, but, you know, we took the, the address position, and I, I made some significant adjustments to the address so that we could get the golf club to go where it needed to go so we could fix the impact. So, you know, you have to understand a little bit of cause and effect of, of what is going to happen, uh, what makes the ball do what it does, and then you can always keep it on a pretty simple basis. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you want somebody to, to, to be a robot out there, but on, on the other hand, you know, I know somebody always talks about, well, you know, you should just leave their natural swing there. Well, if their natural swing is making them shoot 140, well, we got some troubles here. Right. But, we, but somehow right. we're going to have to make some adjustments. So, I mean, yeah, natural swing, is if they can't, you know, contact the ball with it, then it's, it's probably not very natural anyway. But, uh, I mean, I get what right. you're saying, but there's going to be times you have to make some adjustments. Sure. And and, and I agree with that. I, I think that, and, and I think what, what, really people that, that are referring to their more natural swing is that, you know, everybody's body rhythms and, and timing is different. And I think that's really what they're getting through. An example, another example is not so much, um, you know, the direction of the swing or the necessarily the plane of the swing. Um, again, maybe a taller player might have more of an upright and a, and a shorter player might have a little bit flatter uh, swing plane. Um, but I think what they're talking about too is, is really, um, the individual rhythm of the player. You know, for example, if you look at a player like Nick Price, who was a very uh, quick-paced um, uh, s- swinger, of, if you will, of the club, and then you compare it to somebody like a Nernie Ells or a Freddie Couples, that was a little more smooth. They're still both uh, types are generating tremendous club head speed, but they're just a different t- uh, tempo and different timing in the rhythm. And I think that if you've got somebody that swings like a, a Nernie Ells and you try to speed them up, uh, like a Nick Price or somebody else that, that has a, a little quicker pace out there, then you're going to throw them off their natural rhythm. And I think that's going to create a lot of issues. And I think that's something too that um, I think a lot of individuals need to understand. You know, when they, they see a, maybe their favorite player on TV and, um, you know, they want to emulate that swing, that certain key elements might be okay. But if that, that individual they're watching is, um, say, swings like an Ernie Els, and maybe this individual that's watching him has a quicker pace like, like Nick Price, then it's not going to be probably induce or conducive for him to try and copy Ernie L's swing, uh, maybe certain key elements, but not the whole rhythm and timing of it. Um, John, I want to go back to uh, and finish up on, on the goals. I know you had a few more there. Uh, talk about uh, some of the remaining goals and, and the importance that they play in, in preparation as well. Uh, which ones in particular did you want to go over? I'm trying to recall the other ones that I've listed. Yeah. Um, um, is it your, well, I know you more of the... your practice goals and, and things like yes. that? Yes. Well, you know, I, I'll just bring up one of the pitfalls that I see that players make in practice. And uh, one of them is, is players aren't practicing with the right challenge point out there and enough consequence. And I think that if we can set a goal, um, target goals for things to achieve out on, on the practice ranges, one, practice with a lot of intent, but always be practicing and, and playing for something. So once you're out of your repetition or your block style practice, 
I love for my players to set some goals and some challenges for themselves. And if they fail to reach that, then we bring in a consequence, like a fitness challenge or something to that effect. That way the players are starting to practice with the conditions that they're going to be playing events in and having something on the line with each shot. And I think that having good practice goals like that and bringing the consequence into play uh, is effective for a lot of people. And, and we just don't see enough of that. And also taking the practice out onto the golf course. You know, if you, if you and your coach work out that your, your approach shots from, you know, 150 to 170 range are off, you know, I encourage players to get actually into the course to do some of that on-course practice. Skip the tee shot, go drop some balls around 150, 160, 170, play an approach shot in, and see if you can convert it for bird. Because uh, on the course, what, what we see is we actually get into a variable environment, and we can actually start testing ourselves a little bit more. Uh, being at the range is a constant environment, and, and golf's one of those only sports where people aren't doing like a scrimmage type of practice enough. You know, if we were playing basketball, we would run the other team's defense and, and do some simulation. And I think that if players can get into building in some goals for doing some on-course simulation of areas that they need to work on, they'll make improvements a lot faster. Yeah, and, and I agree with that as well. I think that you have to change it up. You know, what some of the things that I try to do is, um, you know, with, with some of the, the corporate students that I work with, I will take them out on the golf course and I very, very seldomly, unless they're doing things right, will I give them an even lie. Um, I try to give them an, and a lot of them don't like it at first, especially if they're first starting mm-hmm. to work with me um, because they're saying, well, you know, boy, that's a pretty, pretty steep slope there. And I said, well, <clears throat> that's what you could, you know, you're going to expect when you're out in the golf course and you're not always going to get a, a nice, perfect, fluffy lie um, like you'd have at the practice range. So, uh, or you're not always going to have it teed up, you know, uh, other than on the tee box, you know, you're not gonna have it teed up, uh, out in the middle of the fairway. So, um, you know, so I try to create realistic simulations that many amateur golfers, and the reason why I do that is because most amateur golfers, um, aren't hitting it out in the center of the fairway. They're hitting it, you know, in the, in the short rough, or they're hitting it, uh, into trouble or, or, you know, especially mm-hmm. some of your higher handicappers. So I want to make sure that the, the simulations that they're getting are realistic to what their level of play is. Now, as they get better, then obviously, you know, I'm going to back off a little bit, but I want them to experience that. And it leads to an, uh, my next point for you, Pete, is is pushing people outside of their boundaries. Uh, I think uh, in both practice and, and play, I think it's important that people don't get into a, a too much of a comfort zone every time they're working with us, because I think then that builds, um, you know, certainly we want consistency, but I think if they get too comfort and are not pushed beyond their limits sometimes, um, they're not going to adapt um, and, and overcome some of the fears and some of the challenges that they're faced with. Um, what do you try to do with some of your students, uh, Pete, to, to get them to do that? Well, many times I always ask them, you know, what's, what's the club you don't like to hit? Let's get that out. You know, let's, uh, let's get you uncomfortable right from the beginning and, and, and so we can – you know, kind of sort of get some kind of a course condition and see how they react to, you know, a golf club that's not very, very fun for them as far as they're concerned to play with. But I also like to, to kind of get some background on them. And when they're playing, you know, ask them the situations, you know, if, if you're standing on the team, there's water left and out of bounds, right. You know, what's going to happen to you. And, you know, even at one point in time, I took a gentleman who was so afraid of the, the 14th hole because there's a gully. And I said, well, how far is, is it to the green? He said, well, it's 160 yards. I said, well, good. Let's hit it 110 and just keep plunking them in the gully. It's not that big of a deal. 
you know, he was so terrified of hitting him in there. I said, well, I'll even give you some old bowls. Let's just get over the fear of hitting at the gully. Let's hit a few in there. You know, so right. you try to get them, you know, over those obstacles as, as best you can. But, you know, I always like to take them, in, especially in the short game, and put them in situations that I, I, I know that, you know, it, like you said, it's not always sitting right on the frames they can chip off of. Let's go over here and, you know, put it down in the deep grass and figure out how we're going to get this out of here. You know, so – put them in as many situations as you can. And and I agree with what John was talking about, you know, on course, you know, get out there on the golf course and put yourself in those situations. It's just going to help you learn so much faster. And, you know, and in many cases, get over some of those, you know, comfort uh, situations and and some of those fears of what you have. Exactly. And, you know, something else, uh, Pete, that I, I try to do with some of my students, and I'm sure you've done similar is, you know, they'll get to, you know, 110 or 120 yards from the green and I'll sort of be their caddy and they'll say, okay, well, I'm, you know, hand me my wedge. And instead I'll hand them a seven iron or a six iron and tell them I want them to execute that 120 yard shot with a different club. Now they've got to, you know, get the men. And this is John really is going to be a question for you. Um, but I get them to, to change it up because Again, they're going to go for what they their sort of stock shot, their you know 120 yard wedge or 110 yard wedge, whatever they're hitting. Uh, now they've got to convert and use a different club. Uh, now they've got to improvise. They've got to use a, a little bit of the old noggin upstairs to figure out how they can manufacture a shot with a club that normally they might hit 150 to 165 yards, depending on their abilities, um, and and how they can accommodate that. And I also a lot of times I'll do it where there's not an option to bump and run it up, so they can't just. Uh, you know, bump and run the shot and, and get it onto the green that way. Sometimes they might have to fly it over. So, uh, again, they've got to use a little improvisation there. And that brings me to a point for you, John, is, you know, as we get into the season now, as we're starting to open wide into a brand-new season, um, I'm sure you're doing a lot of things, uh, especially with some of your juniors, um, to, to get them prepared mentally uh, for the season and to be able to face some of the challenges they might be uh, you know, coming up against throughout the year. So what are some things that you do from the mental side of things to, uh, or tune-up, if you will, to get them ready for the new season? Well, uh, first off, I will always remind them what our definition of success is. And um, for us, this definition of success is taking action. So we really impart on the kids to get up, take action, go pursue the goals. And we equate failure to lack of action or kind of sitting around. So what we really try to impart on people uh, facing the ups and downs of golf is that success is in action, and every time we're taking action, we're succeeding because we're either going to get validated and achieve our goal or we're going to get educated. So one of the things I want to remind them of is getting them into the proper growth mindset to be able to handle the challenges as well as the the good stuff. Uh, And that's really the approach we take. So oftentimes – Uh, After their rounds or they're coming off the course, we do a lot of, you know, what do we do well and what do we learn? And uh, we try to keep it into that mindset. The other thing is, is we really reinforce uh, our basic play strategies. And for us, it boils down to the three P's, we call it. One, being positive. And when I'm talking about being positive, it doesn't mean like you've got to be smiling and giggling around the golf course. I mean, we never saw Tiger Woods do that, but we could all agree that Tiger was a positive thinker. And when we're thinking positive, it's really about, one, being positive in our targets and setting a clear strategy for each shot. So rather than an avoidance strategy like don't go in the gully, like that one guy probably says all the time, we really want to get clear on what our target is and what our strategy and and be positive in that regard. 
as well as being positive in our self-efficacy, you know, our ability to go out and get the job done. And uh, so that's one of our P's, and we I preach to the players that we always have to win in that department. Uh, second P is patience. You know, a lot of our kids go out there sometimes try too hard or try to force things or they get down because they didn't convert a birdie opportunity. Uh, so we really preach a lot of pr- patience out there, patience in your process, your shot process, patience on the course, and letting the round unfold without us trying to, you know, manipulate or script it out in our head, you know. And uh, finally, it's going to be our shot process. And uh, for us, that's really what we drive or try to get across to the kids, get them process-driven rather than so obsessed with school. Because process is really about getting down and doing the business. And if we do that at a high level and we're bringing really confident, committed processes to each shot, uh, the chance of us having a low score increases dramatically. So our goal is is, uh, getting those process numbers up and – we teach them based on their brain what they need to do in each one of the zones in order to qualify for an effective process. And uh, we really work on trying to get them up over 80 90% with that. And um, those are some great ways of kind of going out and approaching any round of golf or even the journey of golf. If we're staying positive, we're staying patient, and we just keep working that process to mastery, uh, we're going to get ahead on the course and we're going to get ahead in life. Yeah, uh, great, uh, great points. Thank you, John. Um, Pete, obviously, uh, in addition to our high handicappers, I know you're working with um, some higher caliber uh, golfers as well. How does it differ working with them? Obviously, it's a little easier in some ways, but um, what are some things that you you work with with some of your better golfers out there? Obviously, you don't have to maybe focus on the mechanics or uh, on some of the the general uh, fundamentals, if you will, with them as, as often but obviously you need to, to keep them. What are some of the common concerns and, and, and questions that some of the better players have uh, when you're working with them? What are they working on? You know, it's, it's, it's great what John just talked about with process because there's a lot of times in, in going through the development of, of where we're taking them with their golf swings and, and what we're trying to achieve that they lose sight of the process. And then they begin to practice and and they they don't do the things that they should be doing. And I'm always on them about sticking to the process. We've we've got these individual drills and and goals that we set up for you and you have to stick to that. And, you know, and and I really like what he was talking about with those, those three things. And, and, you know, the patience part is, is really, really tough for me. You know, going through the process of drills and, and working on, on different areas. I mean, sometimes it can be monotonous, but in the end it's, it's what they need. And so it's really getting them to stay focused on, on what, what the goals are, what we're trying to achieve and continuing to, to perform that process that we put in place and with the newer players. You know, it's really about getting them an understanding of what they're trying to do. I mean, to me, that's really mm-hmm. the big part. I mean, it's hard to get them into a process if they don't understand what they're doing in the first place. So with new yeah. players, I'm always about, the first thing I tell them in every situation we go to us is what are we trying to do? I mean, the ball's 10 yards off the green, the pins over there. What do we want the ball to do? And I'm always getting them to understand what the ball needs to do, what the club has to do to achieve that ball flight. And what do I have to do to make the club do that? And I'm always working them in those, uh, that segment all the time. So it's from the ball to the club, to the player. And that way they get an understanding of what they're trying to do and it makes it easier for them in the end as we're going along to put forth a process of practice to make it work. 
And so it gives them a, a good understanding of what's necessary, and then we can begin to start to build more things for them to do. Yeah, some great points as well, Pete. Thank you. Um, John, on, on the, the, the subject of, of uh, elite or, or some of our better players out there, obviously uh, you work with that category as well as, as some of the, the newer golfers out there. Um, what do you do in a situation where you've, you've got a high-caliber player, you know, ball striking's not an issue, but for some reason um, their game has become derailed and they're just not making things happen out in the golf course? Obviously that's an internal issue. It's not a, a physical issue. Um, so you've got to kind of get into that golfer's head a little bit, find out what, what he's struggling, uh, you know, he or she is struggling with. How do you handle a, a player like that when you've got a, a high caliber player that you know is uh, playing at, at the highest level out there, but for some reason it's just not happening? How do you coach them through that process and, and get them into the winning track? Well, the first thing that we're going to do is um, – going back to what I was saying earlier, we eliminated the whole idea of a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, universally, mm-hmm. I could tell you what's preventing their performance, and universally it's the same thing. It's, it's stress and going into the stress yeah. response. And, that, and stress isn't like the, the normal competitive pressure, but it's kind of that scale of um, anxiety to fearful. Um, but basically it, it's the stress response to fight or flight that's taking place in their brain that's, that's preventing their performance. And the reason why is, is when we're, we're operating with our best functions and we're feeling good about ourselves, we actually have access to both hemispheres of our brain, and we're using the upper part of our brain. So we're able to perceive things in the right perspectives. You know, we're making good decisions. And then as far as the golf swing goes, we have full access to our motor cortex, and there's no interference going on. So all of our synchronistic muscle movements, the timing, the rhythm of the swing, all that's intact. However, when a player is starting to go into stress and the fight-or-flight response is going off in the brain, the brain literally shifts and it kind of works down and it dominates in the limbic system. And when that takes place, there's a change in their perception. So they view themselves in a different light, their golf game, their swing. Uh, They're making different decisions out of stress. And then as it relates to the motor cortex, it's literally getting inhibited. So a lot of those, you know, fine uh, muscle motions, or, or motor programs and the quick twitch and things like that actually are being in, impaired by the brain. So what we do is, is we put them through a system we develop that determines which of the 16 mental golf types they are. So universally, everybody's going into a stress state, but what sets that stress state into motion is going to be subjective based on the individual. So we look at the human element of that and we evaluate some facets of their personality uh, to determine what their primary gifts are and what their least developmental functions are. And what's been interesting, Ted, is that there's predictable patterns that we go into when we're using our brain properly based on your type mm-hmm. and also the predictable patterns of stress that a player goes into. And so we do the mental fitting. We get them aware of, and start keying them in on their gifts and strengths. And, you know, the ironic thing is, is we do our gifts so naturally that we think everyone else does it that way. And it just isn't the case. So keying a person in on their mental strengths, like keying them in on the right motion in the golf swing, uh, just that alone can start changing the, their, their process and their play and also bringing up what their stress side is. And usually from there, people are already starting to make some shifts and connect the dots. I mean, my job isn't to really teach people new things. My job is to help people discover themselves. <clears throat> and, and this hardwiring that we're talking about, it, it's, built in like your handedness. 
So I'm always going to be a right-handed person. I might learn to get my better with my left, but I'll always be a dominant righty. And so that's step one is key them in on their dominant preferences and then what their mental left hand is. Uh, and after that, we start working and building it into the process and seeing where their, their gap is in the routine. And then we address <clears throat> some of the belief systems. And, and that's where tools like hypnosis or NLP could come in to help uh, kind of clear away some of the belief systems and, and start rebuilding the self-image. So yeah, sorry and, for the long-winded answer. Yeah. No, 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 that's, that was perfect. Um, and that's exactly what I was looking for is, you know, I want, this is the whole purpose of, of Coach's Corner is really to get into areas. You know, I've said this many times before, you know, I, I don't want the panel discussions to be about, um, you know, fixing the, the common swing, you know, ailments that, that most golfers have all the time because, you know, there's only so many times and there's so many only ways that you can talk about fixing uh, some of the common issues that people deal with, like fixing the slice and that, because it usually relates back to a much bigger issue. Um, and a, a lot of times, you know, people are looking for these quick fixes. And the truth of the matter is, and, and Pete, I know you can attest to this as well, um, if a golfer wants to truly improve, there's a number of things that they need to do. Um, and unfortunately, most golfers out there aren't willing to do some of the things that are necessary. And they want that sort of Band-Aid um, to get them through. It's almost like, and I hate to use this analogy, but it's almost like uh, um, a, a drug addict. You know, they want to get that next fix. So they're, you know, they're searching the Internet. They're, they're looking, you know, watching video after video to see how they can get that next fix. And then you get out there, and it might work temporarily, but they haven't really got to the root cause yet. And, and this is, you know, Pete, what my question for you is, is how do we, you know, sort of flick that switch in our players to get them to realize that going after the quick fix is not going to be a long-term solution? Well, you know, many times when if, if you're just talking to them and they've had some problems with impact, problems with different shot patterns, and those continue to come and continue to show up and continue to show up, it gives them a pretty good idea that they haven't really gotten to the, the root cause yet. They haven't really fixed right. what's really given them the problems that they have. And so, I mean, I like, you know, that you're bringing it this way because that's, that's you know, pretty much the basis of what I do. I'm all about cause and effect and finding the one thing that's given them fits to what they're doing. You know, and it, it goes into – you know, a, a common deal about, you know, fears and, and inhibited, you know, you, uh, a prime example, another gentleman I just worked with showed up and I, you know, he got a five iron in his hand. There's a green right out in the center of the range. It's 150 yards. I said, just aim at the center of that green. And he sets up, you know, 80 yards left of it. Well, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> this guy's afraid of going to the right, you know, and so right. instinctively, what a lot of people would do would square him up first. Well, he's going to be terrified if you do that. He's already afraid of going to the right, so he's aiming 80 yards left. So what I went and looked at him, I had him hit a few shots, and, of course, you know, they start way left and curve to the right. And, you know, I said, you know, have you ever understood why your ball curves to the right? No, all I've ever had to do is make room for it. And so – what I did immediately is I went in and fixed the reason why it was curved. Well, now they're all flying 80 yards left. Well, it, it's really right. easy process now to work with him to score him up because he's, the ball's not going right anymore. And so to a certain yep. extent, you know, when you're talking about those, the cause and effect and the process that it goes through, I mean, it's pretty easy when 
when you're talking to them and, and their problems keep coming, I love your analogy about the Band-Aid. You know, there are some great Band-Aids yes. out there, but, you know, they all fall off eventually. And it's, you know, you've probably seen one of the things I, I wrote in there about a virus. You know, every swing has one, yes. and it creates symptoms. And, you know, the symptoms are always going to stay there until you get to the virus. So, you know, if those symptoms keep coming back, you know, you can sort of walk in through with them and say, you know, look, you really haven't gotten to the root yet because, you know, you keep searching and keep searching for that, you know, that quick fix and you're not finding it because you're not fixing the right part. Yeah, and, and it also goes to, and, and well said, and, and, and that's exactly was my point. You know, the other the issue is that a lot of the, the uh, golfers that we tend to work with um, that are high handicap or, um, you know, newer to the game tend to make the same mistakes over and over again, um, but yet expect a different result. And yes. what they don't realize that if you keep doing that, uh, and repeating those same mistakes time and time again, but expect a different result, you're, you're never going to get anywhere. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to, you know, do something that they can do relatively quickly. That's not going to take a lot of time. And it, it's, it's the same thing as like working out. You know, if you go to the gym once a week, as opposed to three times a week, you're going to see less results going once a week um, than you will three times a week. Even if you're not doing a great routine, just by by volume and repetition, you're going to see some, some uh, you know, results. They may not be significant depending on your routine, but you are going to see more results going three times a week than just going once a week. Um, and I think that people have to understand that it's a commitment. To learn this game is a commitment. And, you know, that's an, another mental hurdle, uh, I'm sure, John, that you face with um, some of the newer golfers out there that, that – take up this game and maybe play for a couple of years and they're kind of getting burnt out. They're not seeing a lot of improvement. Um, you know, you want to try to give them a soft pillow to land on, but at the same time you have to give them a little bit of a, a nudge and a push. So how do we give them a push and a nudge, if you will, to get them uh, on the right track to, to see results, to, to have some success? What do we do mentally to, to get them their minds in, in the right uh, you know, frame of mind? Well, I think to give them the push, what you want to help them connect with is the why factor. And I think that if you can discover why it's important to them to make the progress and we can tap into some emotional current with that, that would be your starting point to get them to get them motivated. And uh, going back to what Pete's saying, I think sometimes it's just that they're, they don't understand the cause and effect. So things like video and things where you can bring it up and show them is a good thing. But I, I think what it boils down to at the end of the day is people don't like to look bad at the driving range. And so right. they don't want to go and put in the work because they're afraid of being embarrassed or, or looking bad. Um, <laughs> but we want to see the driving range is not as a performance center, but a, as a learning place and almost like a laboratory where we can go and experiment. And I just think that a lot of times people aren't progressing or they burn out because they're trying to go bound some old practice methods that just won't pay off. You know, for them to just go and rake and hit balls for, for 50 minutes or an hour, uh, it's just unproductive time, and there's no retention in that type of practice. And all they do is get quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, where if they, if they learn to slow down a little bit and they weren't having their ego so involved with the driving range and looking bad, if we can find that why factor and push them there and also encourage them to say, let's make the driving range in this practice facility a place of experimentation, and I want you just to keep working these moves. I, I think we'll get a little bit more out of them. 
Uh, I'm in a pretty blessed position. Most of the players that I work with are all on, a, on major competitive circuits. So they come in right. very motivated and very driven. Um, but we still sometimes run into the same problems where they want to tinker or get off track. So what I encourage people to do is get the ego out of the way and, and pursue the mastery and, and work on those bad shots there. So when we get to the course, we're actually able to click and, and make some better things happen. Um, but to get them motivated, it's, it's always comes back to their why. And if you can get an emotional why factor there, I think we'll at least get them to the range and at least put in some more time in. I'm going to ask you uh, guys each the same question, and I want to. Uh, I'm just curious uh, how you, uh, uh, you know, how you perceive this. But let's take a player, um, and we'll use Tiger because he he was certainly someone that was very vocal or, or not vocal, but uh, physical about his changes and that. And another uh, person that was very uh, similar, um, but for different reasons, was Nick Faldo. But there are two players there that made substantial swing changes. Uh, throughout their careers, what do you think they were looking for? Obviously, they know that no person is ever going to be have the perfect golf swing. But in, in your mind, Pete, what do you think a player that comes in and, and you know certainly a great ball striker hits hits phenomenal golf shots, plays well out there, wins tournaments? What do you think they're looking for when they're continually making changes? And then, John, I want you to answer that as well from your perspective. Well, I think it's it's kind of nature in all of us to. To, to want to be the best we can be and, and to, to be, you know, strive to continue to get better. Um, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, Tiger's a little bit of a perfectionist. And, you know, even though he was, he was really good at what he was doing, um, he's, he, he wants to get better. Um, and, you know, no other, other reason that I see for them other than they're just trying to continue to improve to, to master what's going on. I think the difference between somebody like Valdo and somebody like Tiger is Tiger through injuries, I don't think was able to go and, and continue to make the changes as, as Nick was. Um, but Nick is a very mechanical, very, you know, um, I, w- I would say regimented type of processor. And, and Tiger, you know, is, is one that, um, you know, he's very powerful in what he does, but he also just wants to be the best. And so I think, you know, in those regards, I think that was the driving force behind making changes is just trying to get better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say John, that do you th- for sure. Yeah. Do you think also too, that John, that maybe there was a little, uh, and I don't think Eagle would necessarily play in, in either ones. Cause I don't think they're really thinking about that, but do you think sometimes some players at that level, in addition to, you know, being perfectionists, obviously in the for, uh, forefront of it, but also, that they're they're never satisfied with the results. Um, they're they're always wanting to push themselves just that little bit more. Do you think that plays in it as well? Without a doubt, uh, and especially with someone like Tiger and the drive that he has, I, I think that they're always just looking for that competitive edge, and they always think that they could be that much better. I mean, I, I, it'll be funny because the first person that shoots the 54 will probably come off and say, you know. I left that eagle out there. It could have been a 53, you know, and I feel like (laughs) a lot of those guys like Tiger uh, and Faldo who've reached the highest level, and they just have this tenacity and this intrinsic drive to to be the very best and and achieve mastery with what they're doing. And uh, I really think it's just that and and maybe looking for a competitive edge where 
the new coach had said something to them that resonated and uh, make enough to make a trip with them, you know, or make that jump. I don't know, guys. Do do we really want to see somebody shoot a 54? I mean, 59 was bad, was bad enough, but 54, I mean, you know, that's just a whole level, you know, of, of game that, uh, you know, as Jack, Jack put, you know, that I'm, I'm not familiar with. I mean, you know, how, how low is enough? I mean, obviously, you know, obviously our goal is to shoot in the lowest scores, but I mean, there, there comes a point in time where you, if you get to such a level that you're consistently shooting scores that, that low, um, you, you've almost, I won't say you've mastered the game, but you've gotten to a point where what else is there left to do? Um, are you even having fun at that point anymore? Um, either one of you, go ahead. Well, I think, you know, when you're, when you get there, there could be a certain part of that. I mean, you look at somebody like Tiger with what he's achieved, what he's done, there could be a little bit that now with his injuries. It's like, you know, you know, what do I have left to prove? I mean, you know, I had a great run and, you know, and I know in the back of his mind, those 18 majors are still sitting there, but you know, at this point in time in his life with his kids, with his business, with what's going on, you know, we're, you know, the motivation has changed. You know, it's a lot like in any other sports. You get a guy who struggled his whole life and he worked hard. He gets to the major leagues. He has a great run, gets a huge contract, and becomes mediocre. Because, hey, I made it. Yeah. I got here. You know, I've, I've, my goal was to get here and I'm here. You know, and a lot of them don't have that, that instinctive drive that we're talking about with Faldo and Tiger and Michael Jordan and those guys that are just – they are so just worked to be the best and they're going to work and work and work, you know, Larry Bird shooting a thousand jump shots every day, you know, yeah. that's, that's a different breed of athlete, you know, but they're out there. But I think, you know, yeah. it's just a, it's just a matter of, you know, I don't know, just to strive as, as I think John mentioned to be the best. Do you think as, as average players um, that the rest of us, when we see that, can can be a double-edged sword. It can be a source of inspiration, but can also be um, have the opposite effect as well. Have an unrealistic um, expectation on ourselves when we see. I mean, obviously, I'm not expecting to be Tiger Woods and and uh, or, or uh, you know Jack Nicklaus or anybody like that. But when we see players that just reach such uh, abilities, um, do you think that some players out there that push and push and push themselves and don't obviously are not going to get to that level for whatever reason um, that, that sometimes kind of deflates the tire a little bit. Um, John, what do you think about that, that, that theory? Well, you know, at the end of the day, those people are going to reach their pinnacle, which would be a a great achievement in and of itself. So uh, I think a person who's pursuing some lofty goals and and leaving it all out on the table, even if they don't reach it, they're going to be developed into a very successful person. I think overall, I think the challenge that it runs into, I mean, we're constantly keeping players expectations in check and, and working on keeping them in a place where they're realistic yet pushing them and something that doesn't become a big burden. What I, I see the problem is, is a lot of the parents of our, our young juniors and yeah. competitive players where they have this expectation that the Jordan speeds are, you know, hundreds of th- or thousands of them around the world, right. And their kids won. And uh, most of their kids aren't going to win a major at 16, but they can certainly burn out. And I think keeping some yeah. of the parents in check with understanding that, like a Spieth and Tiger, they're they're prodigies. I mean, they're the anomaly. 
and otherwise prepare for a long journey for your kid pursuing professional golf. Um, so I think that's where it becomes a little more detrimental because the, the parents bring unfor- or unnecessary expectations to the table. The kids can't fulfill it. And then they got rifts at home because the kids feel like they let down their parents and they feel like, you know, I'm putting all this work and why can't I get ahead? So I see it more from there. I mean, as an athlete, you want them to have that drive and the tenacity and, and I'll never tell anybody their goal is too big that just to go for it. And, sure. Uh, I think at the end of the day for them, they're going to turn out and be very happy with what they were able to achieve. Uh, I just hate to see and the think, young kids burn out too soon with, with some of the parents' expectations. Yeah, and that, and that really brings to the key point is it needs to be the kid's uh, or the child's goal, not the parent's goal. Um, it has mm-hmm. to be what they want. If they want to set a, a goal based on um, – you know, their own individual uh, drive or desires, then that's okay. But you're right. Uh, and, and, you know, we hear of this often, um, you know, especially at some of these bigger golf schools that, that attract a lot of, uh, you know, junior players. Um, you know, one of the biggest complaints that I hear talking with some of the people working at, at these uh, facilities is that the parents are just relentless. I mean, they're just constantly after the, the kid to, to get out there. And when they're not, um, you know, hitting the mark, if you will, um, you know, it's just, there's just so much pressure that's being placed on these mm-hmm. students that, you know, it, it, even most adults couldn't handle that much pressure, let alone, you know, a 10, 12 year old, uh, child. So, uh, you're exactly right. I think that, you know, we have to encourage them, uh, with their goals and, and, uh, and help them along, uh, but keep them realistic as well. And, and you're right. Not everybody's going to be a tiger or, or, you know, or a Jack or, um, you know, a Nick or, or Jordan Spieth or any of those other players um, that reach that high caliber. Um, they are, are and at very such a young age and, too. Uh, you know, you look at Lydia right. with, at such a young age and then it sets this, this precedent like, well, that's possible for my child. And uh, <laughs> that's where some things get a little out of whack pretty quick. So, well, well look at Tiger and, too. And, and, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, Ted, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say go ahead, Pete. Well, I mean, think of one thing before Tiger Woods. He won six straight amateur championships, three junior, three regular. Who else did that? Nobody. Yeah. So, I mean, you could just see the writing on the wall with what was coming. I mean, this kid is just, as you said, he's the anomaly. I mean, you know, it's, it's just an amazing run. To think anybody's just going to turn out to be him is 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 a little bit far fetched. I mean, that's just a phenomenal run that he had, and he was still still an amateur. Unbelievable. Well, well, and you look at and you take on the other side of the, the spectrum, you take a player like Jack. Um, you know, Jack really did not become uh, a great golfer until much later. I mean, he was not a child prodigy. I mean, he wasn't out there, you know, at three years old, um, you know, on the putting green. Um, you know, like Tiger was, it, it was a whole different thing. I mean, he certainly was introduced to the game at an earlier age uh, as well, but he wasn't, um, you know, in the same category at that, at that specific point, but it was through his own drive and determination that led him to the player that he was. And, you know, and he talks about, you know, really some of the challenges that he faced coming out on the tour earlier on, because of course, Arnold Palmer was um, for lack of better words, the King. And, uh, you know, he had a lot of, um, issues that he had to deal with um, and, and sort of not necessarily prove himself, but just become 
um, the best player that he could be and not worry about what was going on around him. And he didn't have, of course, his father had passed away uh, earlier on, so he didn't have the opportunity to have you know, somebody there pushing him, pushing him all the time. He did that himself, but he did it for his own reasons, not because of somebody else. So, um, right. you know, th- th- there's a lot of things that have to be taken into factors. Um, guys, I want to thank you uh, for a very interesting coach's corner. I-, I like some of the discussion that we had tonight, and I want to give you guys very quickly, um, John, I'm going to start with you this time, uh, just a-, a quick moment or two to let the folks know if they want to reach out to you or if they want to learn more about um, what it is that you do, where they can go, and, and how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, you can go to my website, mentalgolfacademy.com, and on there is a lot of information about coaching options and some articles and things. Uh, Or you can also visit mikebender.com. That's where I do most of the work out of Lake Mary, Florida. Uh, Also, if you're interested, uh, I have a book online, Golfer's Guide to Mental Fitness. It'll teach you tools and and strategies to be able to take control of your brain and apply it on the golf course and lower your score. So uh, you can get a hold of that on Amazon. Perfect. And uh, Pete, uh, how about yourself? How can the folks get a hold of you? I have a website too, plainsimplegolf.com. It's the plain is P-L-A-N-E, plainsimplegolf.com. All my contact information's out there, and they can read some of the, the writings that I've done and look at uh, some of the different areas. And also too, um, if you don't mind me giving a plug, there's a new app that's come out called yeah. Pro Swing Tips that I'm also on. Um, they can they can get the app from their app store, and um, it's it's a new on-demand online. Uh, venture that's that's going on and i'm one of the instructors in there so they can also go that route if they want a a little different avenue uh for what's going on perfect well guys again thank you very much for joining me tonight on coach's corner panel Uh, as always it's a pleasure and john i'll get that information to you after uh, the the program's over and uh, i would love to uh, to get a copy but thanks uh, again and and also john i'll um, reach out to you as well about coming on uh, on a different uh, schedule as well uh, when, you're, when it's convenient for you. But uh, thanks, guys, for doing a great job tonight, and I look forward to you guys returning again here on the Coach's Corner panel. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Have a great Ted. night. Appreciate it. All right, you too. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest uh, tonight on the Coach's Corner panel here on Golf Talk Live, uh, Pete Buchanan and uh, John Weir, two great uh, um, professionals uh, that have uh, been in the game for quite a while. And John is really a great mental coach and uh, Pete as well likes to keep it simple, but uh, gets the results. And that's, what's important here. Um, very excited to have uh, for a couple of reasons uh, to have my next guest. And I see he's waiting in the wings. So let me just read a little bit about him and then I'll bring him on. Uh, his name is Mark Evershed. Uh, he's a, a great uh, golf professional and was actually the Canadian PGA teacher of the year as well. And he grew up around legends like Mo Norman uh, and George Newsom, also from Canada I know you know both of those names. Uh, and Mark recognized at an early age uh, his intense desire to understand the golf swing. And after studying the philosophies of uh, greats like uh, Homer Kelly and Percy Boomer, uh, he created his own unique uh, teaching style based on the premise that knowledge rather than muscle memory is the path to success and that the lack of success comes from incorrect understandings as opposed to the lack of ability. Uh, and from that uh, premise evolved uh, Evershed's theory on the golf swing, a teaching system consisting of online video lessons, uh, some training devices, books, and personalized instruction to help golfers understand and execute uh, the golf swing. And by adopting his theory, he is confident that students will be successful if they understand the mechanics and sequence of the swing. Uh, his method has also led to an impressive list of credentials for uh, him, as, uh, such as a teaching uh, several PGA Tour players and being honoured, as, as mentioned earlier, the uh, Canadian Teacher of the Year. 
Uh, he's had several uh, TV appearances, including on the Golf Channel and Canada's uh, Rogers Sportsnet, which is, of course, Canada's equivalent. Uh, and he was also a uh, multiple winner, uh, 39 professional wins uh, as, uh, to, uh, to his credit. And just a, a great guy and been looking forward to, to having him come on the show here for the last little while. So uh, without further ado, let me bring on uh, my very special guest tonight, Mark Evershed. Ted, how are good, you? Good evening, Mark. I'm doing very it's well, Mark. How are you, you can, doing? It's amazing what you can accomplish in about 100 years. <laughs> I mean, it took yeah. me a long time to put all that <laughs> stuff together. <laughs> well, but that's the fun. I'm but good. you I had wish... fun doing it, though, right? Uh, uh, I'll say yes on the program. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, when you're introducing, it was kind of really cool about, you know, just bring back memories of Mo. Um, you know, the time that I spent with Newson and and the, and one of the, 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 the things I look at is I had no idea that I was with a legend or maybe the best of all times. It, it hardly ever crossed my mind until the last, maybe the last five years of his life. Yeah. I had actually uh, only one time in my life, I had the pleasure of playing with Mo uh, up in Carlisle. Of course, he used to, towards the end oh, of his, yeah. his life, of course, Mo uh, passed away several years ago. And uh, he and another gentleman who I had the opportunity to play. In fact, that's how I met Mo was uh, through uh, Nick Westlock. Um, <laughs> okay. And, I, I have a of course, they used to, to play. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Let me give you the quiz. Okay. How many tournaments did Nick Westlock win? Oh, gosh. I know it was a lot. Um, give me, give me with, within 100. <laughs> I, I'm going to guess Let me tell- that it was probably yeah. in the 80s. 80s? How about 432? Wow. Am- amateur uh, tournaments. Ev- yeah, and every single one was documented. Uh, Nick was, wow. um, 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 how would you, how can I put it lightly, nicely? Um, he was uh, uh, a rare historian that he had everything. Every one of his victories was documented, as well as Mo Norman's victories documented. Right. So it was, it was Nick, wow. and his, Nick in his own right was pretty cool too. I just can. I, he only gave, he gave me a wedge lesson once, so that's the only thing I can ever tell you. You know, he gave me lessons wise. Yeah, Nick. Nick was uh, very interesting, and and I'll, I'll share a very very quick personal story how I came about knowing Nick. I actually dated his daughter Sherry. Uh, for about five years, and and oh. met um, met Nick through that uh, through that ordeal. But uh, anyways, lovely girl. But nonetheless, um, that's how I met Nick. And of course, how I met Mo um, yeah. was we were actually up at Carlisle on the driving range, um, obviously several years ago, and uh, I was hitting some shots, and Mo happened to come up in the golf cart, and uh, he, he said, of course. You know, to, to Nick, what are, you know, what are you doing, Nick? And he said, I'm just helping a, uh, a friend of mine here. And he's struggling. I was struggling a little bit with, uh, with a couple of shots. And, of course, Mo typical style comes up, and he tells you right away what you're doing <laughs> wrong and what you should be doing and all that kind of stuff. And I just loved it. And it, and it turned out that the two of them were going to play together that day. And I was really surprised because Mo would normally not do this. He said, why don't we have the young man join us, and I'll give him some more tips out. In the, so I got yep. to play the 18 yep. with him. Yep. And yep. just and that was the only time I got to actually play with him, but uh, played with Nick a number of times, obviously. But uh, 
but Mo was just a, a great guy. And I'll let you share some more uh, Mo stories as we go along here. But um, let me just ask you, uh, obviously you spent some time on the Golf Channel and, and Sportsnet uh, over the years. Tell us a little bit about some of your experiences there and, and some of the things that you did on the show. Well, uh, very, very interesting. Um, you know, my life has been um, kind of interesting. I, uh, if I were to start it, in 1980, my, my wife and I had a Down syndrome daughter. And the day she mm-hmm. was born, they said she'd never make it past the mental age of uh, five, and she'd never get out of grade one. So by fate, my wife and I found an alternative way of teaching. And um, so we, we, we started doing that, and that led me to the, you know, the way I think now about how teaching should be. Well, you know, long story short, you know, my daughter ended up going through high school on the honors roll. Which um, you know, wow. I always use in my yeah. It, it might not have ever been done in history before. A Down syndrome person goes through high school on the honors roll, you know. So when I look back and when I disagree with people or whatever, you know, I like to tell them I have an honest reason to disagree because I've I've seen things that very few other people have seen, and so I you know I, I kind of vamp it into my 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 teaching of the golf. Um, of golf. So, uh, in about 1985, I got a golf. I got a, a call from a guy named Lee Siegel at the Golf Channel, and I was doing right. a radio show. I'm uh, sorry, a television show called Golf Talk Live, and I was doing it me and the camera for an hour, once a week. Yep. Well, that morning, that morning they called me and said, you know, we want you to start wearing our clothes, and I was getting paid by another guy to wear their clothes and. I just had enough, you know. I just said, you know, I, I, I just don't want to do it anymore. So I kind of quit on the phone. And that afternoon, Lee Seagull from the Golf Channel calls me. And, you hmm. know, I'm all excited about that. And he, he says, Mark, uh, you know, the, the one of the owners of the Golf Channel knows who you are. And uh, we're coming to Canada, and we need some Canadian content. And, and by the way, do you know any women instructors? What he says. So I said, sure. I, you know, right. I know Sandra Post and, and a bunch of... And da 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 da. And I said, well, and I said to him, well, what about me? He says, well, send us a resume. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You know that one, right? So I sent him this letter, and I said, if you don't know who I am, then I don't really want to come on your show. Here's what I've accomplished right. in my life, and I and I get I gave him the lead up of my daughter. I told him the story about my daughter, and I sent it away. Right. And the, I ended it and said, if this isn't good enough, just throw it in the trash. <laughs> and about two weeks later, Lee, Lee Seagull calls me, and he says, Mark, we want you to come on the show. So I go down, and I, and I do the show, and, and you know, I, the phones went just berserk. So I go, in the, I go in the next day, and Lee Seagull says, I don't know what you've done, but we have never had a response like this ever on, our, on the Golf Channel. So wow. I had 1,800 emails <laughs> come in that night. You know, 1,800 came in that night. Maybe one of the first time anyone ever heard about lag pressure. And I said, you know, right. if you want to hit the golf ball straight, you've got to swing crooked. Okay, the lights, the lights, the phones lighted up when I said that. And then I said, you know, <laughs> the understanding is to, is to move in such a way that the right wrist retains its bend as you go through impact. So I had 1,800 emails, and, they, and, they, and, and one guy says, I'm nuts. And all the rest said, I right. don't know what you said, but I liked, I, I liked it, is what, is what they would say, right? So right. <laughs> January comes along, and I get a call from Mike Ritz. 
And Mike Ritz says, congratulations, you received the number one and number two show of the year. Wow. So they all aired, all the top shows aired on January 1st, New, Year, uh, New Year's Day, right? So I got the 8 right. o'clock and a 9 o'clock spot. And, and uh, you know, that's how the whole thing got started. But I, I, I want a I, I, uh, Peter Kessler story, if I can. This, 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 sure, this, go this ahead. Story. Yeah, I like but, Peter. Yeah, all this. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I go down there, and, well, Peter, before you go down, Peter writes your letter and says, send me everything you got about you. And I go, oh, yep. my gosh, I got a lot of stuff, you know, and, and my, my, my swing theories and all that. It's pretty in-depth. So I, I send mm-hmm. it to him. And I go down there, and I don't know if he's read it or not, right? So I meet Peter, and we're on the show, and and um, the cameras are getting into place, and, you know, we've got our makeup and everything on, and, and we're going on there. And Peter, said, Peter Kessler comes on and says, oh, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. We're here with Canada's Mark Evershed. Yeah, da 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 da, and Mark, what do you think of? And we 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 go on. We have this great conversation. I recognize that Peter's extraordinarily good at what he does. In that, right. uh, he reminded me when I needed to get back to what I was saying because I can get I can get going on a tangent sometimes. And and then <laughs> first time we're gonna take we're gonna take a break. Yeah, and and the, the guy behind the camera's got the ten fingers up, you know, going ten, nine, eight, seven, you know, this kind of thing. And Peter's winding yep. it down, and Peter says, and we'll be right back with Canada's Mark Evershed, right? And the, guy, the camera guy goes, one, off the air. And Peter starts screaming. He starts yelling at the cameraman. He starts yelling at the producer. I'm going, what's going on? You know, what's going on? You know, I just go, what? He says, you should have, he's talking, to, the camera should have been here when we were doing this, and you should have, oh, and just go, come on. And then, and then and I'm looking at the cameraman, and we're coming back on air, and there's 10 seconds, right? Yeah. So he's going, nine, eight, seven, six, and, 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 and we're down to one. And then Peter turns to the camera and says, and welcome back. We're here with Canada's Mark Evershed. <laughs> and I'm still, if, if, you, if you watch the show, you can see I'm still in shock. Right. <laughs> But I'll tell you what, incredibly smart, incredibly smart guy, extremely professional. Um, I came away with an awful, uh, a, a, a great a great feeling about, you know, his dedication and his mind. Um, yeah, I, I think we could do with more of him. But that was that was my golf channel. You know what, did you... The other one I used – yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, Mark. No, my just my other my you know the the Canadian one. I had I had my own TV show. It was just me and the camera, and then I did uh, like you say the equivalent of Canada's uh, um, Golf Channel, and I had that show for about seven years. Um, so we would we would do that, and you know an awful an awful lot of fun. But I I think the difference now is it's a whole new world out there. With man, there is so much there's so much stuff going on in the golf world. It's incredibly hard to keep up to. Yeah, and and I'm, I want to talk about that here in just a second. One of the things, um, really, why one of the reasons why I remember you so well is obviously being a fellow Canadian. But um, I remember when you had your show when it was just you and the camera, uh, and you know that's not an easy thing. To, that's not. An, I mean, you were doing it really before the Golf Channel was really becoming uh, a household name, and you know you used to. You were yeah. You oh for sure. I mean, Golf Channel was certainly uh, on, but. Um, you know, there really wasn't a lot of, it was more infomercial and, and that type of yes. thing at the time. And it wasn't really until Peter Kessler came on the golf channel 
and started doing his fireside chats with you know Palmer and Nicholas and all the other guys mm-hmm. that it really became mm-hmm. more interesting. You got to hear a little bit about these guys, um, and the rest of it was just somebody flogging a product. Um, yep. You know, there really wasn't much substance. Now it's all nothing but the tours, so you don't see anything else on there, and occasionally an interview. Mm. But, um, but you know, you used to have – I mean, you would tell it like it is, and, and it brings me to a question um, – you know, you're certainly not afraid to, to tackle controversial issues. Is that just in your nature? Um, you're just somebody that believes, hey, let's get, wow. get to the nuts and bolts of things? Or, or are great, you somebody what a that... What great question. <laughs> well? <laughs> that's a great question, Ted. That, uh, that's a great question, and I have an answer for you. If you remember earlier, I was talking about my daughter, Robin, with a Down syndrome. Every yeah. doctor in Canada said there's nothing you can do about it. And then I found right. a place in Philadelphia called the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential. So mm-hmm. we found out about them, and we drove down there. And here, I'll just give you the quick version of the story. Um, I was sure. making $7,000 $7, a year as a young assistant golf pro. Um, it was costing me $15,000 American to go down and help make my daughter well. What mm-hmm. I learned from that is there's all kinds of stuff you can do if you're willing to do it. So my, the program with my daughter was, and this is the honest to gosh truth, Ted, 16 hours a day, 72 volunteers per week, no days off for four years. So wow. I came away from that going, don't tell me nothing can be done. Now, you may not want to do it, and if you don't, that's fine. I can live with that. You may not be able to Mm -hmm. afford it. I can live with that, but I refuse to believe that there isn't something that can be done. My daughter could fully read by the time she was two years old. You know, so when I go, I hear this stuff on on Facebook and that about you know all this learning and uh, and this new age learning, and I lived it for four years. I have a hard time backing off. Adding in what I know, I mean, sure, these guys have read a lot of books, but I lived it, you know. So it's, it's yeah. hard for me to back down, you know, when I when I've sort of kind of been there. And I and I and my thing is this, Ted, you know, I, I'm not looking for beginners, and I'm not looking for the masses. I'm really looking for guys that really believe in themselves, and they really mm-hmm. want to get it. That doesn't mean you got to be a tour player. My right. my biggest people are 50 years and old, older that are dedicated golfers that just really want to hear somebody say something different. So sure, I, uh, and I when I when when you say what you're saying and you're right, I don't back away. But I also don't right. do it to intentionally be bad or anything. I just have my view. No. So, right. so ask well, away. and and a good <laughs> yeah no the good. <laughs> The good thing about that, though, Mark, is, and, and I like that as well. I mean, you know, you you have to be willing sometimes to, to push the envelope a little bit in order to get mm. the conversation going. And sometimes a lot mm. of folks out there are afraid, uh, you know, and, and I hate to use this term in, in, in today's environment, but, you know, everybody has become a little bit too politically correct for, for my liking. Oh. I mean, I, I believe there's a difference between, you know, intentionally trying to hurt somebody's feelings um, than giving yep. constructive criticism. I think everybody should have constructive criticism as long as it's meant to be mm. constructive and meant to be helpful. If it's just meant to be mean-spirited or, or what have you, then I don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. And this brings me to a point that, that really has bothered me, and I've mentioned it many times, 
is you look at the equipment manufacturers are a good example. You know, we see a lot of technology at the, at the PGA show and some of the other uh, golf expos out there up in Canada and here in the States. Um, and, and what I want to ask you is, in your opinion, are a lot of the claims uh, real or is it just good marketing? And what should consumers look for when they're – what should they really be looking for when they're going out to, to get themselves a new set of clubs or golf balls for that matter? Well, I'll just get you know, again. Everything that I say is just my opinion, right? And and as you said sure. earlier, it, it's just just it, it is just my opinion, and 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 I am welcome to my own opinion. And I think that mm-hmm. um, to answer your question, um, if the tour players thought that graphite and everything was better, they'd be playing it. You know, right. they can afford it. They'd be playing it. If lighter was better, they'd be playing it. It's not better. Um, my problem is I think we have gotten too far away from it's you. It's not the equipment. Yeah. We've got right. too much in the like of buying a new – hey, a putter is, a, is, a, is a, a, a blob of something on the end of a shaft. You make it go backwards. Yes. We're fooling ourselves to think that, you know, all this balance and just – we're fooling ourselves if we think that now if you if you get a kick out of buying high price stuff then cool that's your kick but you know i i don't buy that that makes you a better player you know i think that you have to take you know we've gotten so far away from taking responsibility for ourselves i mean you know nothing's my fault i mean just not you know it's a it's all the equipment and you know we know better than that so uh, yeah, the marketers the marketers have come along and they they market what they think. You know, I think next year I heard somewhere that they're coming out with this new miracle um, uh, 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 material called wood, and they're going to start <laughs> making clubs out of wood because they go farther right. than metal. I mean, I think that you know that's going to be the right. next. You know, so I think my thing in, in a nutshell <laughs> is Ted, it, it's you. You know, it, right. nothing, nothing gonna change. That you still gotta swing it good. You know, you still gotta hit it somewhere on the middle of the face on a good path. You know, so that's you know, there's I all the other stuff is great, but this is just not my deal. I'm this is I I, I do this thing. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. And and I've said many times on the show, Mark, uh, in in this way, uh, I don't have a problem if somebody wants to go out and buy the latest you know, X, Y, Z driver, but I want to make sure that they know how to use that club properly first before they go and and treat themselves to that particular product. If they're going out there buying it as a game improvement club, then they're spending three, four hundred dollars that could be better spelt is spent somewhere else. And that's the issue that I have with it. And I understand about the the equipment managers and I understand how they want to promote their product and and talk about 10, 20, 30 extra yards. But the truth of the matter is, the only ones that are really reaping, you know, the only ones that are truly reaping those benefits are the guys out on tour because they know how to make the club work. Um, where you know a twenty-five, thirty handicap can't take a, a four hundred dollar driver and get ten, twenty, thirty extra yards in most cases. And I, I just it bothers me when the industry is is so bound and bent on making money that it's frustrated the majority of golfers out there that they've been dropping out. And, and if they think that the stats are lying, that golf has declined in the last decade or so, then they're mistaken. And they know it's true. They just don't want to admit it. 
And part of the reason is because of the frustration level that a lot of golfers have had, is they're just tired of, of spending all this money and not getting anything in return. And that's why I wanted to ask, you know, your thoughts. The same thing with, with technology, Mark. Um, you know, I'm all for, um, you know, some of the latest, greatest technology out there when it's used in its, its appropriate um, purpose and not as, as a way of attracting students. Because I always, I said this to uh, a gentleman that was on the show a couple of years ago. He's a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Patry from uh, Naples. And, you know, we were talking about this very thing about, you know, all of the equipment and all the technology. And I said, you know, the truth of the matter is, Mark, that, or uh, Tom, sorry, is that um, if the power goes out or the batteries die, that equipment is no good. And if you can't teach without that equipment, then, you know, you're doing your, your students a disservice. Am I right? Chad, God bless you for going there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know what? It, it's, it's a heck of an argument, you know, and, and, and uh, I love the technology and what it can do for you in the hands of the right, right. people. But my argument right. would be that anybody can get a bank loan and get a machine, and all of a sudden they're a great instructor. You know, and, and, right. and the guys that are making money by selling the, 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 the radar devices, they're going to call you all kinds of names and, you, and you know, this and that, and they all gang up on you like a pack of dogs, you know, and knock you down yeah. and everything. And they say, well, the guys are getting better. And, you know, they, you know yeah, I, 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 again, it, it, that in the hands of, boy, is there a lot of guys out there fudging science just oh I, uh, you know you sit back and <laughs> shake your their head and uh, yeah so you know yeah it's a it's a love hate and i had a, a discussion went on facebook the other day i had a discussion about you know these young guys all think all this all this stuff is new right and i said uh, to the right. guys, i had a machine like that before you were born you know and, he, and then you know right they, know, <laughs> they, they don't realize we had do you, do you know that 3d was invented in 1894 and the right. guy that I know. like it was invented yesterday, you know, and I go, oh, my gosh. And it, it's kind of funny. I, one of the guys on Facebook said it was great the other day. He said, boots on the ground. You're not going to replace yep. boots on the ground. Get all the technology you want, but you still got to teach a person how to. I, I, I had a gentleman from, uh, from Canada who um, has yep. a nice budget to teach his assistants how to become better golf instructors. So he hired me for a day, and he hires a lot of other top instructors to come do his thing. And I spent the day with him, and at the end of the day, they, the assistant said, you know, Mr. Evershed, you taught us more with two two-by-fours than one of the leading, I'm not, I, I don't want to say track. Yeah, one, I know. But one of the, one of the leading authorities <laughs> on that right. could do us in a day. And you know what? And I yep. absolutely, I you know. But anyways, that might just be me. That uh, because I've been around forever. Uh, so you know. No. Uh, you know we're gonna get we're no, gonna get in it, trouble for mentioning that. But that's my opinion. Listen, well, you know what? This is my show, so I'm not really worried. No, I, I, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't don't misunderstand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't misunderstand me. I, I'm like you. I love the technology too in its right cons. I think what's happened, like anything yes. else, Mark, is it? Yes. It's been abused. Yes. I think there, there's yes. been individuals. Um, many of them, unfortunately, that have been led to believe that uh, more is better. And they get yeah. all the bells and whistles, and they get out there. And the problem is 
their students' eyes are rolling in the back of their head like a slot machine because they're so confused with all the data and all of the information that they're being fed, which most of the information the student should never even see. It's for the instructor's yes. own use. Yes. But, you know, in, in a way of showing off and bragging about, hey, look at this, what this can do, um, you know, the, the student is actually the one that suffers. So here's the test that I look at, Mark, as whether this stuff is, is truly working as well as it should be, is when – yeah, the guys on tour that are hooked up to these uh, machines or, or, or what have you and using the, the latest and greatest equipment out there, yeah, they're seeing results in their game. But if you look at the handicaps of the average golfer out there, they've barely changed in over 20 years. So why is that? If this equipment is, is supposed to be giving them extra yards and is supposed to help them with their game, mm -hmm. why are handicaps not changing, right? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I give, again, I give you my opinion. Like Mo Norman, you know, <laughs> Mo would always say, talk about the uh, comfort zone, right? He always talked about comfort zone. Right. And you, you know, being around as long as you have been and I've been here, you know, if I get it like a ten handicap, I can almost guarantee you if he shoot, if he shoots thirty six on the front nine, he's going to shoot forty six yeah. on the back nine. Don't even, don't even go bother go play. Just put forty six on your card and walk in. You know, there is yep. the, the only way that you can really lower your handicap, like really lower it, is you have to know right. you know what you're doing, right? You, you, you can't, like, again, you, you, the, the, okay, so let's go, let's go down this road, if you would, if you would Ted. Sure. I, I, I'm always getting an argument that, well, you don't want to know too much information. I go, yes, I do. The only time yes. I remember failing in my life is when I didn't get enough information. You know, and there's right. the, you know, but and then and then and and then the guys that want to blow you out of the water, they, you know, they want to talk. To, I didn't say that I wanted to learn about keeping my elbows and everything. And who said that? I didn't say that. You know, why don't right. you let right. me finish what I'm going to say before you jump in and decide that I'm talking about keeping my head down? You know, so so when I when I met Thomas L, my story was this: I never won a single tournament until 1986. When I was when I was right. 27 years old, I I turned pro when I was 16. So you know, and I was wow. always a good athlete. I practiced as much as anybody ever did, and I never won nothing. I went down and spent three days with Tom Tomasello in uh, in 1985, 1980, 1980, the end of 1985, and uh, I spent three days learning how to read a golf the golf machine. I hit. 50 balls in three days cost me $2,500. Now, now I told you the story earlier. It cost me 15000 a year for my daughter. Well, add 2500 right. for golf lessons for three days in 1985. I came home. I won right. my very first tournament a week week later uh, and, uh, and won $3,000 during that tournament. Got my money back, and I'd never won before. And, you know, everybody knocks a golf machine, you know, and I don't know why they knock it. It's a fantastic – now, if you have a bad teacher, I get it. But you can have right. a bad teacher anywhere. Tom Tomasello rocked my world, told me things that I'd never heard before. I could instantly put him into play because he he made it so clear for me. You know, does everybody know the golf machine book was never written to sell on the shelves for you to go out and read? You know, right. so it's just—I guess that's been what my life's been, Ted. It's always—it's always been about my my daughter. Unless we went to the institutes that taught us a new way, I would have never been able to do that to her. 
If I never ran into Tom Tomasello, I would have never won. And by the way, it's 37 tournaments, not 39. Somebody's exaggerating. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I won, I, won, I, won, I won five out of eight that summer. That wow, I played in, fantastic. and I didn't play much. I was an assistant. I'm not playing pro. I just got up and played. You know, you know. The, fun, the, the other thing too is, I could instantly hit it left-handed. Like, hmm. Because, now that, now because I easy. put my brain. That's not easy. Well, I put. Well, uh, the only reason I can tell exactly how I did it. You know, Tom Tomasello was the first guy that ever told me the whole the whole damn game's in your hands. If your hands move correctly, everything else moves correctly. So I just put my right. brain in my left hand, and I did it the other way. Yeah, it's just yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, 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 you're not going to beat the old time guys that know how to make swings work. No, and, and you know what's interesting, you know, just going back to the equipment real quick. You know, you you hear about all these stats about these guys bombing, you know, the balls out there, oh. you know, a mile, and you think about when guys like you know Nicholas and some of the other players and Palmer, these guys with persimmon woods were hitting at 275, 280. There's actually, uh, on record, I was watching this special um, a couple of weeks ago that uh, they did on Jack Nicholas, and they talked about one of the, the, the balls that he hit back in the 60s that was, I think, 314 or 320 yards. Mm-hmm. That's with a persimmon wood. That's not with metal or that's not with, uh, you know, titanium or anything like that. That's with a persimmon wood. That's pretty impressive when you're talking back in the 60s. Well, so, and, and, you, you know, and the other this thing is what... Guys don't remember. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was. The, 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 I would say this. I would say to start a conversation, not to end one, to start one. The best players back then were every bit as good as the best players are today. There are just not as many of them. And then the, the, guy, the yeah. tech guys want to say, well, the tech that's making guys better. And you know what? It's, it's the millions of dollars that is making guys better. You know, we got we now we have thousands of people trying from the age of two to get good enough to make millions of dollars. Back then, there was a hundred guys trying to make a living. You know, so yeah. so you know, it, my my feeling would be, you know, the Hogan's, Nicholas, Sneeds would be every bit as good as these guys are today, at least. You know, and 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 it might even be better. Right. Yeah, I agree. You know, I had I had the honor. Uh, Mark, a few years ago, uh, uh, before he passed away, of interviewing Billy Casper on the show. Mm. And, you know, what a what a great guy. And, and I, I to this, obviously, this day, I mean, he's gone now, but uh, never had the pleasure of meeting him in person. But it, by chance, I had an opportunity, and, and he gave me literally two hours on the show. And um, he was just one of the, the most humble uh, gentlemen that I ever had the pleasure of, of speaking with uh, at that time. And just very giving of his time. And you could just tell and hear the passion in his voice. He just loves this game and, and loves to give back. And as a result of that uh, that uh, interview, I've become very good friends with one of his sons, of Byron Casper, of course, uh, who I'm sure you know through um, through the golfing community as well. But um, but just, just what a great, um, you know, a great guy. But he was never, you know, he was very humble, I guess, is the way that, that I would describe it. We're, and I'm not saying this is a criticism to today's players, but I just, you know, it's, it's all about branding. It's all about identity. Mm. Um, where back then, they just wanted, well, they wanted to play, and it was all about just, um, you know, supporting their family. And it was, it, was a, it was not a, you know, how to become a millionaire. It was how to become 
um, a provider, and it was just to play something that they enjoyed doing, and and they gave back so much. I mean, even to this day, with uh, in fact, it was just earlier this week. Billy had uh, they had his tournament, his annual tournament uh, for Billy's kids out in San Diego at the San Diego Country Club, and so you know here he is, uh, you know, 25 years. Uh, I think was there this year they celebrated, you know, his tournament still going, still giving back to his foundation. So, you know, even two or three years after he's passing, he's still, you know, giving back to, to all those that have helped him. But, uh, you know, the most underrated player ever. Yeah. And I, I had an opportunity. He, is a great he came on talk about his, his book, the big three and me. And he talked about that and he shared, and I'll share it very quickly with you because I, I don't want to take all of your time, but uh, very quick story, and I don't know if you know this or not, but back in the 60s, I think it was when he won, um, uh, the, I think it was the 66, I don't remember what year it was, but he, I think he won the U.S. Open, or he was in the U.S. Open that year. And he, um, of course, you probably know or familiar, he was, he was Mormon. And he was speaking yeah. at, yeah. A, at a, a, uh, 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 an event one of the evenings during that tournament. And a woman came up and approached him and said, you know, my son's wanting to play professional and, you know, so on and so forth. I'll, I'll keep this short. And she said, is there any advice? And she, he, he said to her, he said, just, you know, encourage him, just be supportive and, you know, uh, just, you know, just be, be basically be supportive. And the interesting thing about the story, Mark, is that woman turned out to be Johnny Miller's uh, mother. <laughs> I, I was going to guess that. <laughs> And awesome and that's a story. true story. It's in his, it was in his book, and he shared it. Of course, he did a better job of describing it. But as a result of that conversation with her that evening, of course, she went back and did just that. It supported Johnny, and of course, you know Johnny's career from there. And as a result, those two became, um, you know, best of friends. He he admired Billy Casper um, for a lot of reasons, but just really appreciated what he gave to the game, and and just they became good, very good friends, and still speaks very, very kindly and, and with great uh, fondness of, of Billy even to this day. So it just goes to show you that, that the caliber of player back then, uh, they were just all about giving back and just, you know, truly growing the game, but in a different way. Um, speaking of players, who do you like today? Who, who's somebody that catches mm. your eye today? Um, and you think, okay, this, this, this player here, male or female, doesn't matter. Oh, oh. Uh, my number one, Lydia Ko. I, I yep. just love watching Lydia Ko. Not 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 a, a golf swing or whatever. I just love her attitude. You know, I yep. just, she looks like she's having fun. Um, you know, it just I just love her attitude. I just love watching her. Uh, you know, it, it's hard. I I I respect the heck out of uh, of um, uh, Dustin Johnson. I uh, love watching yes. Rory play. I, I, I'm trying to think, and I'm, um, one of the things that I don't seem to, there's, there, uh, is there a killer out there? Is there anyone, is there a killer out there anymore? Tiger was a killer. Right? I mean, right. Tiger was going to beat you up, spit you out. and I'm not sure that, I think Dustin Johnson is like a quiet killer. Uh, I'm starting to get that yeah. impression anyways. Rory seems like, you know, when he, when he wants to play, he'll go and play and make some money and then go home. Um, it doesn't, they, and they don't need it, right? I mean, you know, if you've got, a, you know, 10, 20, 30, $100 million in the bank, uh, you certainly don't need it like you used to have to need it. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. Um, who else? Do, I, you know who I like? I like watching the guys that get way more out of their game than they should. You know, right. I like, like Jim Pure. I love watching Jim Pure. He shouldn't be that good. You know, yeah. um, 
who's a uh, Zach Johnson? I love watching Zach Johnson. Just because he's yeah, just very, a very, he just he, those yeah, are the guys relentless. I like watching. Yeah. Now, what about let me try, to, yeah, let me ch- yeah, let me change this a different angle. Is there anybody out there that okay. you think that they sh- they should be better than what we see out there? That oh, you're thinking, hey, I think you're, you're better than this. I, I mean, obviously that's them. that's yeah, that's yeah. an open door. But is there anyone that catches your eye that right. thinks you know that this this guy or gal should be playing a lot better? They've got the game for it, but for something's holding them back. Whatever it happens to be, whatever your theory is. Who, who name a uh, player or two that you can think of off the top of your head that, well, that should I th- definitely I think, be better? I don't than think Rory, I don't. I don't think Rory should ever lose. I, I just don't think he should ever lose a tournament. I mean, it just he just he's got you know all, all this talent. And again, Sergio for sure. However, let's give him a little bit of a break. What an awesome win! An awesome win! Yeah, fantastic. That he came through. Maybe maybe he's a late bloomer. You know. It, it certainly could be him, and I'm. But you know, it's hard for me to. I just don't see any of the guys that look like. You know, there are too many guys are comfortable. I guess maybe. Yeah, you know, a guy um, that I thought would be better, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not uh, trying to criticize him. A, a guy um, that I thought would be better. He just was an incredible uh, striker of the ball, and, and he certainly did well earlier on. But you, you don't hear of him anymore. Is Luke Donald? You hardly ever hear of Luke Donald anymore. Uh, I don't even know if he's playing. Well, I, I think when we, yeah, yeah, I know that he is, but you know, I, I here's, I, I'm going to take that at a different angle. I'm unbelievably okay. impressed with guys like, let's say, Nicholas or Hale Irwin or Tom Kite right. or or Gil, Gil Morgan. These guys that it lasted so long. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think I don't I think getting to that top level uh, is one heck of an accomplishment. Staying there. Is incredible. We don't appreciate Tiger for his accomplishments as much as we should. You don't think he could have he could have come up sick and gone yachting, you know, when he was just barely going to yeah. make a cut or something? But the, 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 the you know he's just set the bar so high that we expect other people to do it. And I just I just can't see it being done. So I kind of like the guys that have had staying power that have been around for a long time. I just think that takes. A, a different kind of effort. I, I wonder, Mark, if if part of the problem is that a lot of the guys are not focusing on what they should be. And I'll give you an example that maybe some of the guys out there, and, and, and Luke is a good example of it, that are focusing too much on the mechanics and the swing itself and not actually playing golf. Um, do you know what I mean? I think that they're focusing too much on, on perfectionism and not – really playing the game and, and like like Lydia is a good example I mean she's a phenomenal ball striker but she she's out there having fun she's enjoying what she's doing and she's playing good golf she's not focusing on making sure her elbow is in the right spot or the, the club is in the right position she's out there having fun and I think that's why she's successful um, do you agree with that uh, or, or that, what's your take well yeah to a degree certainly to a degree I do and I think we're going to see like the young guys uh, the young guys are so into, you know, like you say, the mechanics that I don't like. I love mechanics. I think mechanics are great. Sure. If they're the right ones. Not but we seem to when we when we throw out the word mechanics, we seem to have a different vision than what I call mechanics. So, you know, that's a long conversation. But but sure, <laughs> they're, 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 you're going to get guys that play good, they're going to be really good when they're good. But when they go bad, they they and you would think 
all the time they spent on the machines, they were the ones that shouldn't lose it. But they kind of the ones that do lose it, you know, because they're looking for stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, yep. I, I, you know what? One of these days, I think you, we're gonna we're gonna kind of get back to. Um, I think Hogan was correct. You, you know, you have to dig it out of the dirt, and one of the reasons you have to do that, we are playing a game where stuff breaks. Nobody's yep. ever got it and kept it, so we are playing a thing game where stuff breaks. If you don't know how to fix it, you're kind of in a little bit of trouble out there. And meaning, what I'm meaning is, I don't mean mechanics. I mean, pay attention to what makes things work. When Hogan said, "Dig it out of the dirt," that's what he meant. He didn't mean hit thousands of balls a day. He meant figure out what makes what. Here, here's, if I could, if I could, Ted. If, sure. If I okay, when I first did the golf swing, I broke it down into pieces. I broke it down into your hands, your arms, your body, your sequence, and ball position. I broke yep. it into pieces because Tom Tomosello was the only one that ever distanced me. He said, when you have a distance problem, first place to look is your hands. Make sure they're working correctly. Second place would be yep. your arms. Third place would be, let's say, your body. Okay, if you're hitting the mm-hmm. golf ball crooked or offline, the first place to look is your arms. They're swinging off plane. And then I get ridiculed on, oh, you got to learn it all in one piece. Well, if you yeah. learn it all in one piece, what do you do when it breaks? You go and you right. change the whole damn thing? If you, if you break it into pieces and understand what each piece does, when the ball starts doing stuff you don't like, fix the piece that's broken, leave the other pieces alone. But it's just, it's just yeah, again, and that, it's simplicity. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the problems that, that we see with a lot of, um, especially with our amateur players. You know, they get out there, maybe they've taken a few lessons and they'll get out in the golf course and something just doesn't go the way they want it to go. And they start tinkering with every part of their swing. And the next thing you know, they're aiming 30 yards to the left, you know, their hands are are in a super strong grip, you know, because they've been slicing the ball. So they're trying to firm up the grip and, you know, and then they're swinging, you know, this way to out or that way to in or whatever in order to compensate. (laughs) And, and, you know, by the time they show up for the next lesson, it, you're, you're starting to think, is this a new player coming or is this somebody different? Cause that's not the guy that left last Friday, you know, and that's the problem is I think that we've got to keep it simple and, and people have to understand and instead of reading them off a bunch of stats and a bunch of numbers, right. I think people have right. to understand what the components and what the pieces do, as you just pointed out, what they do for the swing and why the ball reacts the way it does under certain circumstances. And I think when people have an idea right. of that, right. then when they, right. they get out in the golf right. course, they've got, you know, quote unquote, I hate to use this terminology, their quick band aid fix, they've got it out there in the golf course with them because they know now they know what the club is doing and what their hands are doing and so on and so forth. Um, and instead of trying to find some quick cure off of the internet. And that's what a lot of players are doing and I think that's also what's created but, frustration. But let me, let me ask you this. Um, let's get back very quickly if we can. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, I just wanted to leave a few minutes here so we could talk about a little bit more about oh, Mo. But, oh, but go ahead. You, you have a question? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Let's do that, and, and you can guide me. At what point is simple just wrong? And whose job is it to decide what simple is? When I'm giving a lesson and I'm talking, and I'm giving out information. Who's going to jump in and say you don't need to say that? How do you know what the person in front of me needed to hear? So these guys keep saying, right. keep it simple. How simple do I keep it? At what point is simple just, it, it, is simple just 
not the correct information. So, you know, it's, it's an argument. It's simple. Everything is simple once you understand it, but we keep trying to bypass right. understanding something, you know? It's like thinking I nothing. I think it's like – You've got to swing when you think enough. nothing. Yeah. Right. I, I think what what – Maybe a better way of, of, of doing it or approaching. I, and I and I've got to disagree to a, a point. I think it, it, we have to keep certain things simple. But I think it it's like building, it's like working with building blocks. I think if we if we overload somebody with too much information all at once right from the beginning, they get overwhelmed. So I think that we have to be simple to a point um, to start, especially with a new. I'm talking about a beginner golfer, obviously. Um, you've got to start the process. Um, I think a little bit simpler in the beginning until sure. you understand sure. how sure. much they're able yeah. to, to absorb and what their learning yeah. abilities yeah. are because everybody is different. But I understand what you're getting at. I agree with the point. Uh, I think that you, you, you can't oversimplify in some cases uh, and undersimplify mm. in others. So, I mean, mm. again, you have yeah, to well treat said. everybody differently. You're different. You learn differently than I learn. Um, perhaps, and, and somebody down the street learns differently than either one of us. So we have to take each individual. And that's really where the conversation when it first starts with the player is understanding what their needs are and then filling those needs. So it's like when you go to the doctor. You know, the doctor says, okay, well, what's the problem? You know, the doctor's not going to write – well, I shouldn't say that because some of them do, but he's not going to write out a prescription <laughs> until he knows what the problem is. And unfortunately, some of them do – uh, but you know what I'm getting you at. Just caught, you just right. caught yourself there, didn't you? <laughs> you, you just caught right, exactly. yourself there. Cause, cause, yeah. <laughs> but and I think it's a great. I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's uh, uh, it's very common throughout different professions. You know, I'm a little bit lucky in that um, I up until maybe this year, I haven't had a walk-in lesson on tw- in about 20 years. Everybody that comes to me comes to me because they've heard about me or my friend, and I usually spend days with people, you know, uh, a two-hour lesson is probably the minimum I'll do. So I've never been in the, I've never been in a position where I feel like I'm rushed, that i got to get X amount of information in in, like, say, 30 minutes. So, you know, it, yes. So I, I guess I'm, I'm lucky in that way. Uh, if, I had, if I had 30 minutes to, to, to do um, – I'm not so sure I could get it in. Hey, you know what? We were talking about my TV show that I had, my, my live show. Do you yep. know who took over yep. that show from me? you know who took over that show from uh, me? No. Sean Foley. Sean Foley. Oh, really? Wow. When I left the show, Sean Foley took over the show. So, because we're both huh. in Oakville. So, even to right. this day, Sean kind of kind of gives me credit for helping him um, – with some of the ways that he does stuff. So, yeah, so we're all, we're both from Oakville. So I thought that was kind of neat that we both did that show. So anyways, what do you want to know about Mo? Very, yeah, very cool. Very quick note. Um, I was, uh, lived most of my life in Burlington. I was born in Hamilton, but I lived most of my life mm. in Burlington. So we, we were neighbors. Um, let me ask you t- two quick, uh, two quick questions. Um, the first one is, uh, in your opinion, do you think Mo was was underrated as a player back in his day, or was it simply the, his quirkiness that sort of held him back? Um, he was not underrated by people that knew him. Right. Uh, he might have been underrated by people that didn't. I mean, I did. I did. You know, I played a hundred rounds of golf with Mo. 
I uh, did an awful lot of clinics with Mo. He often would have me speak. And I remember when I was speaking, when he was hitting golf balls, I used to get angry because people were kind of they were kind of laughing at him the way he talked and the way he dressed. Sure. They were they were not paying attention to where the ball was going. Right. Now that always <laughs> used to make me. You said you mentioned Carlisle once, right? The, the golf course. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. When when I was growing up, all the golf pros kind of sort of. They kind of sort of made fun of Mo and that it was a quirk. Sure Nobody did. can do it like Mo. He doesn't know what he's doing. So one Sunday morning, I went up and confronted Mo. And I said, Mo, do you or do you not know what you're doing? So he spent eight hours explaining his golf swing inside out and backwards to me, why his golf clubs were six iron lies, why he gripped them all at the same length, why they were uh, E5 swing weights and the handles were big. Trust me, Mo, yeah. Mo knew exactly what he was doing. Right. You know, it was interesting. Let me just add, and then I want to ask you the other question. Um, going back to when I was mentioning about being on the range, what was we're very interesting about Mo. Um, talk about another guy that would just tell it to you straight. You know, I was I was hitting some shots that that were less than than um, favorable <laughs> at the time, and this is going way way back. But but anyways, Mo, Mo came up, and and Nick Nick said to uh, Nick said to Mo. He said, uh, you know, why don't you hit a few and, and, and uh, help him out here. So, of course, Mo grabbed a 7-iron. And when I say a tight dispersion pattern, I'm telling you tight. <laughs> Every one of those balls, I mean, you know you know what I'm talking about, right? Well, then he pulled the I driver sure out and did the same thing. So I said to Mo, you know, I didn't know Mo very well. I mean, I knew who he was and whatever, but I didn't know him to speak to him very well. And I said, so, Mo, what, you know, based on what you're doing here, what would you advise me to do? And he just looked out and he said, you see what I just did? And I said, yeah, he said, do that. And that's all he said. To me. <laughs> didn't get, you know, didn't get into it. But, but he, in his mind, he knew what needed to be done. And then he elaborated a little bit when we were all playing on the course. But, <clears throat> but that was how he was. You know, in his mind, he could see everything that needed to be done. But oh, unfortunately, like you said, Chad. he didn't have the – he didn't have the ability to, to relay it verbally as say you or I could do it. And that was what really held him back. And that's what got a lot of the, the um, joking and, and teasing that he got. And that's why people like Nick and, and, and Gus and, and all the other people that surrounded him mm. um, basically protected him because there were a lot of people that, that, you know, obviously would take advantage. But um, what I wanted to ask you about Mo and yourself is obviously I know you spend a lot of time with Mo. What did you learn from watching him? that my listeners could maybe take away? Well, uh, you know what? I, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't, uh, I didn't learn anything until it was way too late. Because Mo, like you just said, you were right on the button. Great analogy, uh, analysis, by the way. Mo would walk by me when I was like 13 or 14 yeah. years old. He would say something to me and keep walking. And I and I, didn't, and I and I wrote the other day. I didn't I didn't understand what he wanted me to do is chase after him and beg him to say more. I didn't realize that until like thirty years later, where it was too late. So you know he would say things. He'd walk by and he'd say, "Me, Arnold Palmer, Ben Hogan, Lee Trevino were the only ones in the world where where our hands were backwards through a golf ball," and he'd walk away. And I didn't chase them, and yeah. I had to ask him that sort of stuff, right? You know, but but when you know the the thing that I that I learned about Mo is you know his 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 attitude was he never saw anything bad, every single shot was great, 
He never saw a bad yeah. night. He never looked up and saw a bad shot. He might saw, oh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Oh, it didn't go where I wanted it to, but it was pretty good. You know, the, the, the way he would speak. Yeah. And I think just being, just being <laughs> right, around right. him was, you know what the most thing is, I grew up maybe around the best ball striker of all times, and I didn't know what I yep. had. And I get so angry to this day, who in the heck gets that opportunity? But, you, but, but to right. me, Ted, when, when I first hung around Mo, he was only a good player. He wasn't a legend yet. He grew into the right, legend. Right, right, exactly. You know, so, and by the way, yeah. it's not you know, how straight Mo hit it. It's how straight he is, how crooked he never hit it. Right. <laughs> I, I, you know I what was funny? one shot going crooked. Yeah, I, I, I was funny. Um, years ago, I was talking to Nick, and this was when – um, I forget who Tiger was working. I think he was already with Hank, or he might have moved on from Hank. Uh, but he was he was struggling. He was making some changes, and he was having some issues. And you know, the driver was going left, right, and whatever. And Nick told me the story. He said that they were up at, at, at I think they were at Carlisle. They might have been at Brantford. And he mm-hmm. said they were sitting around having a bite, a bite to eat. And Tiger was on, and they were showing the, you know, uh, Tiger hitting the ball. And and Nick said Mo didn't even look up at the screen, and he said. He's not. He's he's uh, lifting his his foot up. He's lifting his foot up too much. And the funny thing was, somebody was sitting with him, uh, and it might have been Gus. I forget. Somebody said, "Well, how do you know, Mo? You didn't even watch him on the skis." I know. He says, "I I know what he's doing." The funny thing was, three three days later, they said the very same thing on the Golf Channel when they were analyzing Tiger's (laughs) swing that Mo said. And Mo didn't even Mo didn't even look at the look at the screen when that happened. That's to me just goes to show you the level of how much in touch with the golf swing and how much he understood golf in general that he didn't even have to look at the screen to be able to make that analysis. And some of the best you know, people that out there teaching coaching came to the very same thing after hours and hours of viewing his uh, his video. So that just goes to show well, you the like man what you said was. earlier though. Well, the problem again, the, what you said earlier, the problem with Mo is he looked funny and he talked funny. So it was hard for people yeah. to take him seriously. But, you know, as we got older, like, you know, uh, it, when Mo talks, you need to listen. And if you can't understand what he's saying, then you need to ask a question. Because there's no doubt the man was extraordinary uh, in many ways. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you know, I wish I, wish I had him back. That I, you know, I, now I know what questions I'd like to ask. Yeah, that yeah, that's the thing. I I, I agree with you. I, I I'm very grateful and feel very blessed for the opportunity mm. that I did uh, get to meet him a few times and and obviously got mm-hmm, to play mm-hmm. with him that one time. But uh, yeah, I, I would um, and and actually it was towards the end of his his time, so he wasn't around much longer after that. So I, I you know like I said I didn't get a chance to uh, um, other than a couple times to meet with him, but uh, to play with him that one time. But uh, I'll, I'll certainly cherish that. Um, Mark, unfortunately, we're we're out of time. I got to have you come back. Okay. This, has been a, this has been a blast. Please, um, we'll we'll do that. But uh, let the folks know. Obviously, the, the listeners know where they can, uh, if they want to reach out or, or learn more about Mark yeah. Evershed. Uh, yeah. For those that, for the yeah. two people out there that don't know who you are, um, uh, give them the goods. Where can they go? Well, you got to go to uh, www.evershedgolf.com. And what we what we did there is we put a, a thing on there. I have an online, a pay per view online site. What we did is we, we put yep. a promo code to give people seventy five percent off if they go on there. And I think it's Ted Golf seventy five. It'd be the promo code to get to know me, to get to know what I do. I'm a great Google. Um, 
you know, lots of people say good things about me. Lots of people say bad things about me. But, uh, you know, lots of people do talk. So, I mean, if they want yep. to do that, um, that's where they can find me. Uh, YouTube, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of around there. But, you, yeah, no, Ted, this has been a blast. I enjoyed the heck out of it. What a, what a really cool <laughs> show you've got. And I, and I hope we can Thank do you. it again uh, real soon. Well, for sure. Um, we'll, we'll definitely have to do that. And I actually was thinking before you actually came on tonight, um, before your segment, I have a, a, a panel discussion. I had just a couple of guys on tonight. Uh, it's called Coach's Corner. And uh, I actually I, I stole the name from the old Don Cherry's uh, Coach's oh, Corner yeah. from hockey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and, and that's what maybe came up with the idea. I thought, you know, this would be great. And we have a panel discussion. I do that every week before I, I interview my special guest. So, what I was thinking, Martin, and we'll, we'll connect uh, at some point here in the near future, but um, uh, I was thinking that maybe what we could do is, is put together, um, and I'll let you maybe pick some other uh, pros that, that you know that you want to uh, come on with, and we'll do a special Coach's Corner panel, whatever topics you guys want to talk about, and, uh, and maybe have a great panel discussion here on the show. We could have a blast doing that, Ted. Does that sound like a plan? It sounds like a great plan. I think it would be um, very entertaining. My my sentiments exactly. Um, I thought that would be fun. So I'll, I'll reach out to you in the next little bit, and and I'll I'll give you some prospective dates that that I'm available. And and like I said, we can uh, we can put a panel together, maybe two or three others, uh, including myself and yourself, and uh, we'll we'll come up with a, some interesting topics that we want to cover and. Uh, and uh, maybe get some listeners to uh, to call in on the show as well and and help them with their with their game. But uh, I'll, I'll reach out in the next little bit and we'll set that up. All right. Thanks, my friend. Maybe we can talk about George Newton another time too. I'd love to do that. For sure. I'll I'll, I'll have you back on separately for that as well. And yeah, I apologize. Uh, okay. I forgot to to bring that in. But uh, I enjoyed the conversation, Mark. Thank you very much. You've been a great guest tonight on Golf Talk Live, and I look forward to having you back. Thanks, Ted. Always a pleasure. I hope to hear from you soon. All right, sounds good, Mark. Take care. Good night. All right, that was my very special guest tonight, uh, former, uh, or sorry, fellow Canadian uh, golf professional, Mark Evershed. Uh, great, uh, great conversation. I enjoy that. I like to uh, to mix things up every once in a while, and he's been a, a super, um, a super guest tonight. And and uh, I'm going to have him back on a, a special coach's corner as we just talked about and uh, give you guys an opportunity to maybe uh, call in and, and uh, with, with himself and, and some other fellow uh, professionals out there as well, and we'll get a good, lively discussion going, I'm sure. But uh, I just want to take this opportunity to thank, uh, again, my Coach's Corner panel tonight, Pete Buchanan and John Weir. Thanks, guys, for doing a great job. And thank all of you uh, to my faithful listeners uh, from all over the world for faithfully tuning in each and every week to Golf Talk Live. I truly, uh, as I've said many, many times, have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches, teach professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs stop by, and it's really through their participation and guest appearances that help make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Special thanks to some of the sponsors and supporters of the show, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com and get the latest information on uh, this uh, upcoming guide that's going to be coming out here shortly. Uh, for all of the great courses here in the southeast, Meredith Kirk, uh, Meredith Kirk Golf out in the South Carolina area, great uh, teacher professional as well. Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, thank you for all of your support. Uh, Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf, thanks uh, again for all of your continued support. Sean Kelly uh, from LinkedGolfers.com and Peter Doyle uh, from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thanks, guys, for all of your 
support of the show. And uh, again, especially thank you to my guests and to all of the listeners worldwide for faithfully tuning in. Don't forget to join me next uh, Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern uh, Standard Time on the Women of Golf Show with uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller and I will be here next Tuesday. And then again next Thursday, join me here from 6 to 8 Central on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Have a great weekend. And don't forget to tune in next week to Golf Talk Live. Thanks. <laughs>